check. Uh, it's exciting to see we've got 65 people already. That's very, I'm very pleased about that. Especially because I, every now and again, do one of these pop-up seminars and I literally just give two hours notice, jump on, do it and leave. Um, and uh, why do I do that? Um, oh yeah, well, I'll tell you a little bit of the background as to why I wanted to talk about this subject today. Um, and that'll give time for more people to join us. Mind you, somehow we went straight from 65 to 35, so I don't know if the number's uh, accurate on YouTube. Um, yeah, so sometimes with the pop-ups, if somebody asks me a really good question about something, and I don't want to wait for the Paro seminar, so as many of you know, I give monthly seminars, and I also do uh, reading groups and courses, but if there's a great question comes up, and um, I'm not doing a seminar for a while, then I just go, okay, I'll just go online and, and talk straight away. Um, and I've got the next three months of Paro seminars all planned out, so I wasn't going to wait four months to talk about the subject, hence the pop-up. And um, it is my desire to keep doing these. I mean, maybe I think I do them about three or four times a year. I think I would like to kind of up the, the amount, uh, maybe even doing it once a week at some point and become a bit of a YouTuber. But um, uh, I don't know if I have the skills for that. Um, I see people are starting to say hello, hello, hello. Uh, David, Heather Lynn, hello, Stephen, Andy. Oh, I, there's quite a few people I know here watching this. That makes me even more nervous because I'm tackling kind of like obviously a very difficult subject um, and so I kind of do that in fear and trembling. Um, basically deal is if you're watching this live um, use the chat box to chat to make comments to do all of that stuff. Um, if you have a question for me all you have to do is like write question in capital letters so that I see it. Um, if you forget it's fine I might see it but that will make me see it or even just Q because there's a limited number of characters, so that takes up quite a few characters' questions. So cue or question or look at this, you idiot, or anything. Anything in, in, in caps, I'm gonna see at the beginning and then you can ask your question. You don't need to write your question in caps because that would be like shouting, but you can shout question. Um, and you're welcome to shout your question as well. So that's that. Um, so after I've talked, I'll just have a little look at the chat uh, and hopefully be able to kind of like Pick some of the questions. Um, as I was saying there, the reason for doing this was um, I had a question on my Patreon from um, uh, Elizabeth uh, Marino, who's an anthropologist, and she was commenting on a talk that I gave last month. And uh, I thought it was a really, really good question, a really good comment. And it was about how do we listen to the other? Um, whether the other is homeless or the other is some sort of kind of racist group or whatever, how do we listen to the other and how do we engage with otherness? Um, and so I thought that question inspired me, so I'm going to do this seminar. Um, I'm going to come back to her question in the second half of this talk. Um, but first of all, I want to say that this talk is kind of being triangulated in relation to two others that I've given recently. One is called Social Distortions, that's on my YouTube uh, page, so you can have a little look at that if you want. And the first half of my talk is going to um, come off the conclusions of that talk, but I'll, I'll also summarise that now for you. And then the other is called From Enemy to Neighbour, 
and that's currently not on my YouTube channel, but I will put it up on my YouTube channel after this talk. It's it's private on my Patreon at the moment, but I can't reference a talk. It's not fair if I don't make it free for you as well. So those are the two talks that I'm kind of primarily bouncing off in relation to today. And this, this idea of, um, uh, you know, how do we understand the discourse around racism in contemporary society? Um, okay, so I'm going to start off with uh, that first talk, Social Distortions. And basically what I did is I took a seminal essay by the anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss um, called Do Dual Organisations Exist? Which you can find in, I think it's volume two of Structural Anthropology. It might be volume one, but I'm pretty sure it's volume two. And this is an essay that Lacan references, and it's also one that uh, Shizak has written very brilliantly on as well. And I just want to summarise what uh, Levi-Strauss is arguing in that essay, and then take it from there. So basically, Levi-Strauss asks this question, do dual organisations exist? And what he basically means by that is, are there societies in which... Um, there are two ways of mapping social reality that kind of fit together, right? So like yin and yang, right? Like uh, the two, two ways of mapping reality that are different, they're contrasting, but they kind of like say they fit together like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And Levi-Strauss basically argues that um, this is highly unlikely, that, that although anthropologists at times have talked about dual organizations, they don't actually exist. And so what he does is he looks at one uh, group, one society, and he notices that one moiety, one group within that society, draws the map of the village in one way, and the other moiety draws the map of the village in a different way. So it's the same village, but it's mapped in two different ways. So one group draw a circle which represents the village, and then another smaller circle within that, which represents uh, the temple, the sacred place. And outside the wider circle is the forest, is untamed land. Inside the circle uh, is residential life and cultivated land. And then in the center is the temple around which everything revolves. Then the other group draw a circle, but they draw a line down the middle. And on one side of, of the line, there's one group, one moiety, and the other side of the line, there is another, uh, kind of the upper and lower class, right? And so Levi-Strauss notices this, he thinks this is fascinating, going like, depending on who you ask, the, the map of social reality looks different. And then he says the common ways of trying to fix this. Uh, one of the common ways is, of course, to say, well, one of them's right and one of them's wrong, right? So which one's correct? Um, the other way would be to say, well, you could say they're both wrong um, and try to find a third way of mapping, which actually is a way of saying that they both can be consumed within some sort of larger map. Almost like if you took a photograph of the village from the sky, you would get the objective layout and then you could map on these two different opposing groups. But Levi-Strauss, um, he uh, rejects both of these and says that um, there isn't some way of, of unifying these 
there's not some way of containing them in a larger symbolic narrative. They are incommensurable worlds. And this is very interesting because this means that um, it's not that a given society has a similar world, right? We all share a similar world and we all kind of have a similar view of it. And then some of us are on one side and some of us are on the other. Uh, and then we can argue and fight. But rather that different groups within society map the world completely different. They basically inhabit entirely different worlds. And so therefore, you think you're talking to the other person, but you're literally talking past them. There's a, an incommensurability. Now, in the talk that I gave, I go into this notion of the real. In psychoanalysis and in philosophy, the real could be named as the antagonism that generates the different ways of narrating or symbolizing social life, right? So there is some sort of underlying antagonism or conflict, and there is some sort of underlying fundamental fantasy that that generates these two very different ways of seeing the world. And the real is kind of that. The real isn't the, the true map, but rather what prevents us from having a true map, what prevents something from being at one with itself. And I've used the example before, but in Northern Ireland, we have a city that is called Slash City. Well, um, they call it Stroke City. Um, uh, and it's called Stroke City because it's got two names. The city is either called Derry or Londonderry, depending on which side of the conflict you grew up on, whether you're a nationalist or a loyalist, right? Whether you're uh, 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 Catholic or Protestant, right? So if you're, if you're a loyalist, you would tend to call it Londonderry, and if you're a nationalist, you would call it Derry. And of course, there's no in-between, right? You're stuck. <laughs> so if, uh, it was always a way of telling what side of the community you were on. Somebody might ask you to name the city, and uh, you'd be terrified because if you name it incorrectly, the people asking you might beat you up. So uh, eventually, you know, in the media, it was called Derry Stroke Londonderry. And then there was a radio presenter who called it Stroke City. Right. So they became kind of known colloquially as Stroke City. But that's kind of like, um, there's one city, Derry Stroke Londonderry, uh, but it's mapped in two radically different ways, depending on which community you're part of. Okay, so what has that got to do with um, discourse around kind of race in America? Uh, so one of the things that's difficult is that people are talking past each other all the time, and, um, and then it generates a whole, I think I mentioned it in the description, this cottage industry of people making YouTube videos, mocking the other side and owning, in inverted commas, the other side. Um, and you know, so it produces something, but it's mostly um, hot air. Uh, now, one way of beginning to maybe understand the, the, the why it's so messy, I'm gonna draw a, a kind of matrix in, in, in our heads. I'm not gonna literally draw it. Uh, I should have PowerPoint or something. But uh, if you could imagine three columns, I'm not gonna talk about these columns because this is very well known, but three columns, and we'll call the first column uh, prejudice, the second column power, the third column prejudice and power, right? So sometimes when people are talking about racism, they're talking about prejudice. So they're talking about subjective prejudice uh, against a group. 
And then sometimes when people are talking about racism, they're talking about power, which means that you don't have to subjectively be prejudiced against the group, but you're participating in some sort of structure that effectively discriminates uh, materially against a certain group. And then you have power and prejudice. Some people say that, you know, it's racism is both, right? It's, a, it's kind of a bit of a mix of both. So those, those are your columns. And, you know, once you start to kind of like identify who's talking about what, it kind of clears things up a little bit. But the one that's less known is the difference between the racism of supremacy and the racism of Orientalism. So supremacy is where the prejudice is against another group. Another group is magical, special, undivided. And Orientalism, um, or sorry, yeah, your group, supremacy is when your group is undivided, when your group is uh, magical, is, is, is uh, better. And Orientalism is when the other group is magical and special and undivided, right? And you can begin again to see, and I'm not going to use any contemporary examples because it's too emotive, but you can begin to see that yes, some people are talking about supremacy when they're talking about racism, some people are talking about Orientalism when they're talking about racism. Um, now, the question is, how does supremacy and Orientalism, how do they interact with each other, right? Are, are they a dual organisation, right? Is the perfect society for racists one in which some of them are supremacists and some of them are Orientalists, right? Um, that would be the kind of common sense kind of notion is that these are like yin and yang. They're opposites that, um, that speak the same language, right? But in terms of the notion that dual organizations don't exist, then you have to go, okay, right, supremacy and Orientalism have to have a more complex, incommensurable relationship with each other. So what does that look like? So to know what that looks like, we have to move from S and O to S and M, right? Sadism and masochism, right? Uh, supremacy kind of can be seen as a form of uh, kind of masochism, or sorry, supremacy is a form of sadism, and orientalism a form of masochism. So at a, at a political level, this, this supremacist is, in popular sense, enjoying the suffering of the other. The, they are undivided, and they are causing the, uh, the suffering of the other. And the orientalist is the one who's getting pleasure out of um, seeing the other as undivided and themselves as divided and responsible and, and wrong. Right? But the interesting thing is, sadism and masochism are not, again, they are not a dual organization. Um, so let's kind of dissect this a little bit more, right? If a sadist was just interested in causing suffering, so we talk about a psychotic sadist, right? They're just interested in the suffering of the other. Um, that wouldn't work, right? The, the sadist and the masochist are involved because the sadist enjoys the pleasure of the masochist, the pleasurable suffering of the masochist. Um, the, that's why the old thing of like the, the ultimate uh, punishment for the sadist against the masochist is to stop playing altogether, to stop the relationship, right? But that would be, that wouldn't work, right? If the, if the, if the Sadist says to the masochist, yeah, right, what can I do that you really, really won't like? Well, I'm not going to cause you any suffering. I'm not going to play the game. Um, but that completely breaks the link between sadism and masochism. Or 
you can say a masochist says you can do anything to me and then the sadist says okay i'm going to cut off your hand and the masochist suddenly backs off right so and the fantasy frame is broken right so you you can already begin to see that sadism and masochism um, have a very very subtle dance and the masochist has a lot of power the masochist is the one who is often negotiating what is a painful pleasure and what is just painful, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And that kind of uh, uh, negotiation is happening, you know, throughout, right? So um, the perverse structure, so, you know, sadism and masochism are part of a perverse structure. Not, not, I'm not talking about, say, say, a psychotic sadism, but a perverse sadism and a perverse masochism um, are incommensurable. It's not that the sadist is just taking pleasure from the suffering of the masochist and the masochist is just enjoying the suffering. The sadist is enjoying the painful pleasure that they're generating in the masochist and the masochist is enjoying the pleasure that they're generating in the sadist. And there's, so there's this kind of inter, interconnectivity. So what is the underlying antagonism or the fundamental fantasy that... Um, unifies the masochist and the sadist and one way of thinking about it is that it's all about there being an undivided other and that undivided other is maintained precisely through prohibition through a not having through a not having sexual gratification or through not having pleasure or through through a type of confinement or suffering. So you see both of them are occupying different places in a fundamental fantasy of an undivided other, a divided other, fundamentally divided other, um, and a prohibition that prevents these two coming together and an enjoyment precisely of the prohibition itself. and so that means that fundamental to, the, to sadism and masochism is the generation of anxiety. Right? Um, the lack of one person has to be exacerbated, has to be inflamed, has to be um, brought out, has to become a thing, has to become almost like a substance. The, the lack has to take a shape. Um, through this, as I say, this antagonistic generation of an anxiety builds up, builds up, builds up, and is not fulfilled. And as that lack is felt, so is the feeling of some other who's undivided, who can fill that lack, who can satisfy it. But that fantasy is only maintained through the, the impossibility. Um, and, and there's an element of this in all sexual desire, right? Um, you know, sex kind of ends with the orgasm, right? With the, with the pleasure, like all the enjoyment is in the foreplay leading up to that, and then it kind of ends, the little death, right? Um, and so there's an anxiety generated in both parties. Uh, the, the sadist needs the masochist in order to feel undivided, right? They feel divided, the masochist generates their anxiety and gets it to a point where then they can feel this, this sense of being undivided. and. The, the sadist generates the anxiety in the masochist. So this generation of anxiety and lack and then a not fulfillment of the lack and then a pleasure precisely in the lack of fulfillment itself. Right. Um, which uh, is obviously, maybe not obviously, but 
than the ideological, the central ideology of today, right? Because if in contemporary economic life, there is always the promise of an undivided other, something, some commodity satisfaction, some psychedelic enlightenment, some sexual experience that can allow for a sense of wholeness and completeness, which is only ever kept alive through not getting it, through its impossibility. Then there's a uh, society generates a perverse structure, right? There's a perverse um, ideology at work today, and that perverse ideology primarily uh, manifests itself as Orientalism within kind of like obviously within corporate America, obviously within the entertainment industry, government, and also supremacy uh, within other areas uh, of the government and maybe in kind of more kind of working class environments. So these, these two elements are interconnected. They, they do fuel each other. One's just in kind of a more dominant position today, but they both feed on each other. They both rely on the same underlying fundamental fantasy. And both of them are failures, right? That's why they can never be overcome. They will always keep returning. And what is the failure? The failure is the inability to integrate lack and enjoy lack. Right, to integrate, to enjoy, and to overcome that lack. So the, the, the perverse individual, in a way, is always repeating either their own self-division um, or the, the other's self-division in order to maintain a certain pleasure. Um, and the way to address that fundamental fantasy is to somehow see that we are all divided. Right? That's why for someone like Edward Said, who kind of coins the term Orientalism, Orientalism is also a form of superiority. So it's not, again, dual organisation that supremacy is, we think we're the best, and Orientalism, we think they're the best. Right? Orientalism is, uh, is, a, is a form of kind of perverse supremacy because the Orientalist says we are responsible for everything. Right? We are responsible for all the terrible things that have happened in the world. We are responsible for the terrible things that are happening in another country, etc., etc. Now, the reason why that's a form of, of superiority is because to be evil, you have to be ethical, right? You have to rise to the level of ethics in order to be able to do things that are wrong, right? Whenever you treat another group as being special, magical, more close to nature, all of those kind of like notions. Um, what you do is you basically are treating them like a child or like an animal that hasn't yet reached the age of being able to themselves be a moral a character who is able to do evil. And that's why a lot of the critiques of Orientalism are people saying, no, don't, don't, don't take all the responsibility onto yourself and treat me like a child. You know, I'm responsible for my own issues. <laughs> you know, I, that, because taking that responsibility on to be unethical or ethical, um, both Put, place yourself in a higher space. You're more human. You're more kind of like a, a you know, you're you're risen to the level of a free agent. Whereas these others are purely pawns that either relate to you being brilliant. Like this, this, this group of people would be nothing without us. We can come in here and we can show them how to do everything, right? Or uh, we are responsible for everything because this group don't even rise to the level of being able to take any responsibility. So there is within Orientalism, as Edward Said brings out, is weirdly, it is just as 
um, superior, uh, just in this interestingly perverse kind of way. Okay, and I don't know if I've kind of driven the ho the point home enough that this is the ideological position today. In that ideology, in an, in a nutshell, is any system that covers over the lack that avoids a confrontation with self-division, with the division of reality. Um, and, and so ideology is always attempting to cover that over. There's a great lecture by Todd McGowan on his YouTube channel. I recommend you watch it on ideology. And he goes through kind of uh, how ideology as a term develops over time. There's also a good book by uh, Terry Eagleton uh, on ideology as well. There's, a, there's lots of good stuff out there, but those are two very good ones. But uh, Todd McGowan, you know, talks about how ideology attempts to maintain the idea that there is no fundamental division in society, there's only a contingent one, right? There's a, there's a group that if we could get rid of, everything would be great. There's the division that's, that's part of existence called the lack is made into a contingent loss, something that can be gained back, something that is not necessary, something that is not woven into the nature of reality, something that is not ontological. And that loss, that lack is made into loss and that loss is put onto someone else that we can then cut out like a cancer. Now this brings me to the second talk. Right? The second talk I gave more recently, which was called From Enemy to Neighbour, develops this idea that basically what we have politically is we have the categories of friend and enemy. A friend is someone who is close, an enemy is someone who is distant. A friend is someone who is safe, an enemy is dangerous. Right? A friend is within, an enemy is without. Right? So the, we've got these distinctions in the the political theorist Carl Schmitt basically talks about how politics is managing these categories of friend and enemy. The, the category of neighbour is different. A neighbour is not a friend or an enemy. There are neighbours who are closer to friends and there are neighbours who are closer to enemies. But the difference is an enemy is someone that you can cut out of society, you can kill and destroy. A neighbour is someone that you occupy the same social space as. They are toxic. They're another whose music's too loud, who, um, who kind of impinges on your life and your rights, who um, can be very, very annoying, but you have to live with, right? They're part of society. You can't just get rid of them like the enemy. The category of the neighbor then is more true than the enemy. Scapegoating is when you take the lack, make it into a loss, put it onto some other group. Uh, that's a scapegoating mechanism. Whenever you realize that your enemy is actually part of the same social structure that you're a part of and exists because of that social structure, the enemy then becomes a neighbor who you have to tarry with. Now, the point of this is a neighbor is not someone who, you know, is a friend. Oh, the, the enemy is just someone whose story I haven't heard, right? That actually, once we all get to know each other, we'll all have like a hippie commune and all get on well, right? No, the neighbor is someone you precisely don't like, you know, someone who's potentially someone who is weird and other and strange. But what I did in the last talk and say, go have a look at it, I'm just summarizing, is looking at how the monstrosity of the neighbor is actually... Uh, scary to us because the neighbor ultimately reveals our own monstrosity to ourselves, that we are other to ourselves. At first we think the neighbor is weird, but then we see ourselves through the neighbor's eyes and we realize that we're a bit weird. Our political, cultural, and religious views are strange. The other decenters us. And so when you engage with the neighbor, 
you're kind of engaging in this kind of like very difficult conflictual environment. Now that brings me to the question Elizabeth asked and the comment she made to me where she said, well, you know, because I, I used the example of the homeless where I said like, if you look at the homeless um, in a given society, I worked for a homeless organization for a while called the Simon Community. So in Northern Ireland, you've got this homeless population. And um, the idea is not simply that we are good news to the homeless, that we go out to help the homeless. But with this idea, you go, no, the homeless are good news to us. There is something about our society that generates this problem. Some societies have terrible problems with homelessness and others hardly at all, right? So there's something structurally about some societies that generate this homelessness situation. So homelessness is not the problem, it's the solution to a problem that is within the society. So we have to listen to the homeless to try to figure out what it is about the society that I'm part of that means some of my neighbours are homeless. So it's not just about giving a blanket to somebody, it's about going, okay, they are my neighbour, we share the same social space, so they become good news to me because they help me to potentially see the problems within the system that I, that I inhabit. So the question was, well, how do we listen to the other? Because it's different, like the, so a fascist group is different from a home, from homeless group, right? How do we listen to, say, fascists? You know, are we supposed to listen to them because of some otherness and because we share social space with them? And the answer for me is yes, 100%. But there's a difference um, in that. I'm not advocating listening to individual homeless people, right? Um, there's a real need for that. Therapists do, can do that. And actually in the work in the Simon community, that's what we did, right? So that's different, but I'm not talking about that structurally. It's not, because if you talk to individual homeless people, you will find um, uh, some traumatic human stories. You will find some psychotic delusions. You shall, you'll find uh, health issues, different things, right? So individuals have different reasons why they're homeless. Um, I nearly got stabbed by somebody who was homeless you know, a few months ago, right? Uh, he was having a psychotic delusion. Um, and so it's not just sitting down and going, okay, I'm going to listen to you. What I'm talking about is listening to the structural position, asking the question of why does this, this whole system work? Why is Skid Row, which is very close to where I live, why, does it, why is it there, right? Um, so in the same way, it's like asking the Nazi group. You're going, why does it exist? You're listening, you're trying to figure out what is it that creates and gives rise to that group? What is it that gives rise to liberal Orientalism? What, what structures within society generate that and, and make it so powerful? So it's not that you're listening to individuals, right? Not in this political sense, you're trying to listen because you want to abolish all of those things right you want to get rid of supremacy you want to get rid of orientalism you want to get rid of homelessness um, so in different ways you want to abolish them all um, and the way you abolish them all is beginning to work out how they arise structurally out of some sort of fundamental antagonism in society and if that fundamentalism antagonism is connected to um, the fantasy of an undivided other that can, can fully satisfy us or that we can fully satisfy, right? Sadism and masochism. Um, uh, and that is generated precisely by our inability to connect with the undivided other, right? So just as sadism and masochism is precisely generated by failure, 
right? Um, then our contemporary society where we're always promised wholeness and completeness, uh, but never get it. Um, most of us never will get to the point of financial stability or fame or whatever it is that, that we would want, that we think would bring satisfaction. That's precisely what continues the fundamental fantasy. That's what actually fuels it. Um, and for those people who have the stuff in society, the only re way that they are able to maintain it is to imagine it being taken away from them. It's almost if you imagine a kid and you've got a kid who has a toy, right? And they're just playing with the toy until there's a threat that the toy is going to be taken away. As soon as the threat that the toy is going to be taken away comes in, now they really, really want it. Now they're really, really connected to it. So it's only when their anxiety is fueled, is exacerbated, that something's going to be taken away from them, that that becomes a sacred object, an object that they must hold on to at all costs. And then consequently, a child that doesn't have a toy um, can their, their anxiety can be generated when they watch another child playing with a toy and uh, the more they can't have it the more the anxiety kind of arises uh, within them and the more the object becomes a sacred object that they must have and both of those are generated by one is a fear of loss and the other is loss itself um, now all of this is just kind of like my kind of thoughts. I haven't kind of, you know, just kind of talking informally to all of you. But the concern for me is that that we are seeing the, the predominant ideology as a perverse one. So the, the predominant, and I think that's why she's called his two documentaries, The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. There's something about contemporary economic life that generates perverse ideology. And the two forms of perverse ideology that are generated, that are very profoundly generated, are supremacy and Orientalism. And they are interconnected. And that's why they're talking past each other, because they're incommensurable, they're not dual organizations. And two is, they are interconnected and they fuel each other because they come from a the same fundamental antagonism and are generated by the same fundamental fantasy that we have to dissipate. And how do we dissipate it? Well, in parotheology, the idea is, is actually integrating lack, realizing there is no undivided other, um, getting rid of the very, pulling the rug from the very fundamental fantasy that generates this, these types of racist discourses. Um, uh, imagining a community in which uh, we are able to integrate the lack and therefore overcome it. Because when you're able to integrate it, then scapegoating mechanism is overcome and then you can see the, uh, you're basically taking the, the entire libidinal support, the libidinal edifice that maintains these structures, you're not feeding anymore and they begin to dissipate. And the way to do that is to set up communities that are freed from that fundamental fantasy. Communities that are able to embrace the lack in ourselves and in the other, enjoy it, and ultimately overcome its negative dimensions. All right, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to see if you've got any questions or comments. And uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll see where it goes from there. Um, okay. Lots of hellos, first of all. Question, Kevin. So does this sadism and masochism play not also take place on a stage? There is the enjoyment of voyeurism performing for an audience. 
Yes, definitely. So all fantasy performs on a stage. So one way of saying what Kevin's saying, and I'm going to see if I can make a connection with what you mean, but is that, that our fantasies are not private, they're very public. Like we're often fantasizing for another. Um, even if you think about, if you want to be rich, who do you want to be rich for, right? It's not just you want to be rich, you probably, you know, you want to piss off your friends at school and show them your success, or you want to please your mum or whatever it is, right? Who is, who, is the, who is the fantasy performed for? And also more fundamentally, the fantasy, our fantasies are, one way of thinking about our fantasies is that they are the expressions of how we think we get the desire of the other. Right? What we really desire is the desire of the other. And when you look at someone's fa fantasies, sexual fantasies or other fantasies, you find out how they think they are desirable to the other. Um, and um, so I, don't, I have to think about how to integrate that in, but Kev, that's a you know, very good point. I think whenever you're talking about fantasy, but the other thing about fantasy is, fantasy is designed not to be fulfilled. Right? Fantasy is always the, the struggle towards the thing. So fantasy is precisely a way of maintaining a distance. So the perverse structure kind of tells you something fundamental about fantasy, just in a very extreme way, because the perverse couple are the ones who never give themselves, well, one, you know, they never get the pleasure. There's a, there's a constant pleasure in not getting. Um, let's see. Sorry, every time people comment, it bounces, so I have to... Uh... Okay, oh yeah, Cam is saying, yeah, Cam, how's it going? Good to see you, man. I, I, I would love to hang out, uh, see you in person. Uh, he says, uh, and, and Cam always sees what I'm saying under the surface, you know, uh, that opposing political groups do agree about the basic issue. Uh, both Trump, the alt-right, and Sanders, alt-left, frame the fundamental conflict as the 1% ruling elites versus 99% without power. Yes. You know, that, yeah, that's a very interesting point, is that... There is, but, but the powers, where they locate the power is very different. So, yeah, but I think, you know, it is an interesting point you're making, which is that, that these different groups are isolating some sort of elite other. Um, but that, what that elite other looks very different depending on, on which side you, you sit on. So yeah, you have to think about that, but that is interesting, yeah, that, that each, if you talk about this kind of like, to use those terms, alt-left, alt-right, they're both potentially, they need, they're, they're sustained by the fantasy of a undivided other, some group, some 1%. That, and that's the, that's the base of conspiracy theories, you know, is that there is an undivided other and there's left-wing and right-wing conspiracy theories, all designed to have, there is an undivided group. Um, uh, the funny thing is, Supremacism is kind of like where you secretly are that group. And uh, Orientalism is, uh, yeah, where you, yeah, I don't know. I have to think about that. Yeah, it, that's interesting. <laughs> I'll, I'll think about that and come back to it. Um, oh, yes, uh, Van says, could you please explain the, the failure in sadism and masochism? is not quite getting that. Well, the reason why the, the sadist and the masochist keep obviously returning to the same fantasy is that there is a, there is a, a desire to, now this is difficult, right? Because it's a complicated issue and I, 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 um, I'd like to do a session, a seminar purely on this, but 
you could say that what's happening in perversion is there has to be an undivided other, mother, basically an undivided subject, um, instantiated. There has to be a prohibition that prevents you from connecting with that, with that complete other, and the enjoyment is in that prohibition itself. So the perverse subject in different ways is always trying to evoke the lack in the other and postulate themselves as the answer to that lack or place themselves in, in some way in that narrative. So the narrative is, um, like, so if you think of a perverse religious leader who they exacerbate the lack in the congregation, the, that there's a problem, but, and they postulate themselves as the solution to that lack. And the failure, the, the constant failure to, to kind of be the answer is exactly what keeps the people in it. Now, like, so for example, with, with Joel Osteen, you've got a prosperity church where there's the promise of wealth that will fix everything or whatever. And of course, there's the failure to get it, right? The cons so people go, why do people keep going back whenever it obviously doesn't work, right? And whenever you can statistically show that it doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. But the psychoanalytic response is, yes, it's precisely the failure that makes people still connected to it. If it worked, you would be freed from the fantasy, right? If, every, if you went to Joel Osteen's church and you became super rich, one is that might be great, it'll pay bills or whatever, but you'll also find that being supremely wealthy in and of itself does not generate the kind of completion that you might think it does. So the very, the very getting of the undivided thing will free you from it. It's actually the, the failure to get it, which keeps generating the fantasy that if you did get it, it would be amazing and hence keeps you enslaved to it. So the fundamental kind of failure then in, in the sadism and, and masochism connection is that it's precisely they, they enact constant failure, constant prohibition um, in order to keep that fantasy alive. If you're able to integrate lack and see that the uh, there is no undivided other, then that takes the libidinal satisfaction out of the fantasy. Um, which, by the way, on a personal level, you don't that's, you don't need to worry about that. We're talking about structural level. You know, is that if you want to destroy the perverse ideology of the day, you have to take the libidinal uh, lattice that that keeps it together. You have to take that away. You have to to remove it and the way to do that is communities which embrace the lack like like Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever like a group that that says uh, that sees itself as caught up within certain problems and taking responsibility for those in a community of grace where they're accepted for who they are that is precisely the type of community that um, withdraws libidinal investment in these types of ideologies uh, <laughs> um, this is a funny comment. Uh, oh yeah, and Andy says a question. I'd like to hear more about homelessness points to the solution to your problem side. Yeah, actually, if I said that, I slight, said it slightly wrong. It's not that homelessness points to the solution, but it is the solution. Now it's a bad solution but it's a solution, so there's a problem. So our, like uh, the prison system as well is a good example. Any, any country that generates a huge uh, number of obviously prisoners and predominantly from working class backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera, that's, that's not a problem 
in the sense structurally, societally, that's a solution to a problem, right? There's problems in terms of the unemployment, underemployment, lack of uh, proper infrastructures in a, in a given city. Uh, da, 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 you, right, we list out these kind, of, these kind of problems. And then the solution to those problems is to have a, a group of people that you enslave and you, know, you put behind bars and literally get to work to create products or whatever, you know, to, to sell. Um, so it's kind of like whenever you say alcoholism is the solution to a problem. Now the solution becomes its own problem. It becomes even worse than what it's the solution to. But, but the first thing to do with somebody who's an alcoholic is often figure out what sparks it. Like what kind of, what is it in their own life that they're trying to run away from or not be part of. Now that doesn't mean that every alcoholism is uh, kind of subjective like that. I mean, some alcoholism might be purely a biological thing. I think absolutely. But even then, there's often a psychological dimension. But for a lot of people, turning to alcoholism or alcohol or drugs can be a way of avoiding a confrontation with a, with a problem within, say, their family network uh, or in their job. And so the alcohol provides that type of solution. But it's a solution that is its own problem that, that needs to be overcome by overcoming the solution. So yeah, so it's not so much, although points to as well, because you can kind of go right, this, the, the answer is, is fine there. But yeah, I, hope, I don't know if hopefully that clarifies it. Um, oh yeah, UK man says, is this similar to the way in which a culture orients its worldview or fantasy around zero sum narratives versus non-zero sum narratives? That could be right. I'm just not sure 100%. I mean, so zero sum narratives are basically there's a winner and there's a loser. A non-zero sum basically means we can both win or both lose, right? So, um, uh, let's think. So when you're asking, similar to the way in which, yeah, so, oh yeah. So yes, you're, you're potentially saying that those are not commensurable. That's not a dual organization. Those are actually two fundamentally different ways of orienting society. No, that, yeah, that's, that's true. Like that's, that's again, the idea of like, you're looking at, this is not just people inhabiting two different positions in the same world, but looking at two different positions entirely. This is by the way, the, the whole point of, you know, the proletariat is technically the class of no class and they don't have anything commensurable with, with people who are within the system because they're, they, they experience a radically incommensurable worlds and the proletariat are the ones who experience the violence of the system. So the people within the system don't experience the violence of the system, but the people on the outside of the system experience the violence of it. But there's no way in which the two of them kind of connect. And then the real is the antagonism that generates that incommensurability. Right. So, uh, oh yeah, Matt says, uh, this is good. how can a healthy monogamous relationship exist if fulfillment is impossible? We only want what we can't have and vice versa. Yeah, well, you know, I would say that's the good news. The good news is I don't think any form of relationship works. Polyamory, monogamy, whatever, being celibate and whatever, right? That, that there is a, there's a lot, of, a lot of attempts to try to get rid of the lack. So traditionally it was monogamy, not so much now. There's, but but um, the interesting thing about a relationship is precisely it's non-relations. So Lacan has this famous phrase, there is no sexual rapport. Right? There is no sexual relation. What does that mean? Um, 
Now, I have a psych wellness friend who says, he's Lacanian, but he says what Lacan's saying just is that there's always one person who desires more than the other. There's never, there's never a complete kind of like coalescing, um, and that's just kind of part of life. But I think it's actually much more radical than that, that Lacan means the same thing as Levi-Strauss does, which is that the masculine feminine, we'll take those two, not men and women, but kind of, kind of masculine feminine structures, as in, and we'd have to get into what they are, but... Are, are different ways of mapping lack and different ways of orienting yourself to it. So there's never a yin-yang with two people, whether it's uh, whatever configuration you have, there's never a, a fully commensurable unit. What you have is a failure, there's always a failure. But what you can have is a failure that you embrace and enjoy, or a failure that you try to avoid. So that means you can have definitely very healthy monogamous relationships in which the couple, um, you know, acknowledge the failures, enjoy the struggle of the relationship and the, the constant movement of it. Um, and then also enjoy the, the fantasy that the other puts on them. Um, so there's a lot of that is a lot of people, you desire what the other desires. You don't necessarily have the same fantasy as the other, but you enjoy being desirable through the fantasy of the other. So um, yeah, the, the only unhealthy relationships I would say are the ones that attempt to cover over this fundamental lack and don't integrate it. And then that, that causes all sorts of problems. Um, well, there's loads of questions, don't know if I'll be able to get through them all. Um, Let's see, uh, MJK says, in society, can the concepts of prejudice or privilege be an example of the loss that is inherent, but which uh, many uh, try to remove like cancer rather than integrate and overcome? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's that's the case. I think I think behind a lot of the discourse, and not all of it, like a lot of, the funny thing is it's, um, it's really what, what animates discourses rather than the discourse themselves. But I think, yeah, a lot of the discourse today is, ultimately I think generated by a fundamental antagonism which you know I don't want to say too much about but 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 I think the fundamental antagonism is a precariousness and a sense of economic precariousness and uh, anxiety over um, this generated by like profound inequalities etc etc and that generates uh, orientalism and supremacy as ways to cover over that, ways to explain it, ways to narrativize it, ways to symbolize it um, that don't do very much. I mean, this is why, by the way, in psychoanalysis, diagnosis isn't that important. I had this with my analyst. <laughs> I, uh, I had, my analyst was Bruce Fink, uh, Bruce Fink for a year. And after my analysis, I made the mistake of writing an email to him and asking him, going like, so in terms of your opinion, you know, of, of in terms of diagnosis, I mean, what would you say I was kind of dealing with? And uh, even after the analysis, he just wrote back and said, you know, like, don't, don't think it's that important. He says, uh, you should uh, you know, talk about it in relation to your current analyst, because I, I did a year of analysis with Bruce Fink and a year of analysis with uh, Patricia Garavici. And he says, well, work it out with her. But, um, but the idea was, oh yeah, it doesn't do any good to, to, to symbolize it, to put a name to it. That'll just make you feel better. Oh, there's a name for my craziness. <laughs> uh, the, the, the real thing is about you know, working through it. So um, a lot of the narratives that we place over the central antagonism are, they, you know, they can be useful to some extent, but not that useful. 
we always look for diagnosis. I have a friend who, you know, she was able to eventually um, uh, kind of get a diagnosis for uh, like autism. And she got the, the, the diagnosis and she was really happy with it. And for about three or six months, she was, this gave her a real sense of, I can name this thing, can name, 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 you know, name it, I can talk about it, I can put it into a box. And it became an identity for a long time. And uh, something that was talked about online and did it, all of that. But the problem is, you know, it's not that great a diagnosis. Like, as in, it's not that important. Like the issue is more, what are the symptoms? And are they beneficial? Or are they not beneficial? And, and often, um, instead of just kind of being satisfied with, ah, now I kind of have this box where I can understand, I don't think it's that useful, a diagnostic category. They don't use it in psychoanalysis very much, right? They use it a little bit, and there's a great, there's a guy called Leon, what's his surname? He just wrote a book on autism and psychoanalysis. And um, uh, I've heard him lecture, and he's very, very good. But, but it's not a diagnostic category that's overly used, because what's important is really what, what looking at what are the what are the sufferings that that kind of like generate certain uh, symptoms and like as you look at those sufferings and as they dissipate um they uh you know that's that's what's important i don't know if that, I, I just went off and waffled there i can't even remember what the question was <laughs> sorry about that um let's see i'm just i'll just quickly blast through here couple more and I'll stop. Question, David, are people ever convinced when showing the emptiness of their fantasies actually being fulfilled? Yeah, yeah. Could this be a good political strategy or used for therapy on the individual level? That's great, David. I love that question. I was just talking about this on Sunday with the Building on Fire course, is that I would say, first of all, there's some value, right? I think philosophy has some therapeutic value. I do. And the way I, the example I used on Sunday was that that if you theoretically work through this idea and, and become convinced philosophically and logically that, that, that reality is divided, right? So say you come to believe that, then that's kind of useful. So every now and again, when you get really depressed that there's something missing in your life and if only you could have got up, everything would be fixed. Getting up, going for a walk and going through the philosophy can, can have some therapeutic effect, yeah? but. The bad news is not much, you know, it's not, so, sometimes that can be enough and sometimes that can, that can work, but the main issue is working through it. And that's why a psychoanalysis, most psychoanalysis doesn't really give much philosophical background. You don't do much of that. Some do, like existential psychotherapists, I think do, right? There's some, there's some psychotherapists who use the work of someone like Heidegger or whatever. And I, th I think that there's a more of a, a dialogical or philosophical elements of that. Um, but the reason why most psychoanalysts don't do that is because it's kind of like, no, you have to, you know, work it through. But my thing is, so I'm kind of in the middle. I don't know what you think, David. Like, maybe you're in the middle like me. I, the reason why I love theory is because I do think it has therapeutic value and it's, it's easy to do. <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, but the other is community. And community is where you kind of find liturgy, ritual, music, art, poetry that helps you kind of go through this at a more kind of almost relive the um, traumas in a, in a kind of uh, artistic way and, and work through them. So for me, parotheology has those two dimensions. There's transformist art and decentering practices that are the, the bodily rituals, and then there is the theory. And 
you know, I think I think theory does have some therapeutic value, but but for some people it does more than others. I, I know some people who are hyper intelligent, and often their hyper intelligence is a response to a childhood trauma, and actually it's a it's a type of self cure. Whenever you meet people who are hyper intelligent, not always, but they often it's a self cure um, uh, for for something that they couldn't understand as when they were young. Um, <laughs> Matt says Lacan's quote was the title of my autobiography. <laughs> Somebody else said there's not enough talk of S and M in theology. <laughs> there was a Marcella Aldous Reed. She did a lot of that. Um, morning talk. Oh yes, morning talk. I got an email from you, didn't I? So it's a podcast. I really like the the title. I did. I don't know if I got back to you. I'm terrible at emails. I have to do that. If I didn't or resend the email, feel free. Um, how would you convince uh, the Christian Church to accept the lack? If they have not by now, is this impossible? No, you know, that's such a good question, that is, but it's almost like the basis of everything I do, which is partly to say that this notion of the lack is actually woven into, I think, the narrative of Christianity. It's especially up to, the, up to and including the crucifixion, what's called kenosis, and that actually you can do a radical reading of Christianity, a paratheological reading or a radical reading of Christianity that, that shows that this notion of lack is actually an insight within that. And all you need is, what you need is, you know, I try to work with kind of Christian leaders, people who are writing music or speaking within those types of communities, try to kind of show how that is already there you don't have to like introduce it into it. If you have to introduce something in, it's always a problem, but it's already there and you're just kind of drawing it out, then I think it is possible. Um, and the reason why I say it's about my work is that a lot of my work is about kind of like using the Christian tradition and, and operating from that tradition to draw out this notion of lack. Um, and by the way, I think the only way this is gonna really work is if we can have communities like this all over the world so imagine we were starting today, right? Imagine we all agreed with this and we went, oh, we need communities that are freed from the tyranny of happiness, certainty and satisfaction, communities where we're able to integrate the lack, et cetera, et cetera. And we go, okay, let's start. And we, okay, let's come move to LA or I'll move to where you live. We'll start a community, 20 people. And then, hey, we have to be lucky that we all get on okay. And you know, it's gonna be a bit of a hassle. And, we do, and maybe in 500 years, we'll have a hundred communities or whatever, or, you can find an institution that already has millions of communities all over the world meeting every week, three times a week, with, with a whole type of structure, and then be, but also has this notion kind of as a potentiality bubbling within it. Then you can spend your time drawing that out. Then you've already got an existing network that you can use. So a strategy. Um, all right. Um, okay, I'll do two more and then... Um, uh, uh, stop there. Angus, at the beginning of the talk you spoke about two or multiple worlds and how persons seem to be speaking past one another. Are you suggesting communication can only approve by education? No, no, not at all. In fact, that's the problem. Like Education exists at the level of the symbolic. So that's generally not, not going to work at all. What works is when you hit the real, which means whenever you're able to touch the central antagonism within the community that generates the different narratives, the different symbolic attempts to understand the trauma. And that means 
that's not it. Now, it means the person, people doing that maybe need to be educated, right? If you're going to be obviously a political leader. I met a, I met somebody, I was in Pennsylvania, and there's this guy, he's a really nice guy, but he wanted to get into politics. And he had no, he'd never studied anything about politics, political theory, nothing, right? He wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be the next Trump. And uh, he... Uh, he was, uh, he was a business guy and he was successful in his business, but really thought that politics was just going in there and kind of like, I don't know, being like a bull in the china shop and being very pragmatic and, uh, you know, not like spending 30 years in deep reflection and study and talk and all of that kind of thing. So that was kind of funny to me. Um, uh, so, you know, there is a real place for education, but not but only for those people who say want to be leaders and trying to hit on the real but ultimately, like in psychoanalysis, it's not an education. You don't sit in psychoanalysis and get told what your issues are. You kind of more have to experience it yourself. In fact, the analyst cultivates a conversation with yourself. So you, you, you have a conversation with your own unconscious through the analyst who tries to kind of not be in the way of that conversation you're having with yourself. So in a similar way, um, there is a real important place for education, but not in terms of like changing society. For the majority of people, what it is, is about, it's about bringing to the surface the central antagonism and of robbing the central fantasy of its libidinal power. So for example, in the work that I do, I don't need to, if I have a community in LA, which I want to set up on the other side of COVID, um, Although I'll be doing some of this teaching, majority of it will be a community where we do life together and we we sing together and we do ritual together and we hear talks together that are that are kind of designed to help us kind of live into this experience, not not have to have a certain intellectual training. So yeah, hundred percent. Want to kind of get away from that. <laughs> um, and then Neil. Um, I'm a practicing analyst. Oh, very good. Okay, well now you can you can correct all the errors that I've made, right? Um, who's been thinking about the difference between racism as neurotic fantasy of having and psychotic delusion of being? Ah, do you have any thoughts about it? that's very interesting? So, the difference between racism as a neurotic fantasy of having and a psychotic and versus psychotic delusion of being. Do you have any thoughts about that? No, that's very interesting. Um, and it, yeah. Yeah, no, you are going to have to give that talk or send me an email. Talk. I think I think you're hitting on something. So psychotic. So are are you kind of connecting like the the neurotic kind of fantasy as being? It's I don't even know if it fits with the language I've been using, but that would be more like kind of Orientalism and supremacism would be more like a psychotic delusion or well so psychotic delusions there you're tyrannized by certainty that's the person who is certain who who gets involved in conspiracy theories all of that the neurotic fantasy is obviously someone who is uncertain um so yeah i don't know how to i don't know how to map the two i think you probably have a better idea um i would ask you to write something but you can write about 180 characters in this so um i don't know i think you're right there's probably a really interesting way to map what i've been saying onto what you're saying but um i'll avoid waffling because i don't know where that is um, but if you can figure that out let me know um brilliant okay 
I will stop there. Thank you so much for being part of this. I'm going to try and do more pop-ups. If you like them, let me know in the comments and I'll do more because if you enjoy them, um, I'll continue to do them. Um, I, I know this is a very sensitive topic. I really wanted to address it, but because I'm just, you must feel it as like I do, like it's, we're in, we're in dangerous times. I mean, every time is a dangerous time, but I just feel it. I feel it. You know, I even feel it very emotionally, which I don't usually, I'm a, I don't feel very much at all, you know, um, as in the things don't necessarily get inside me, but I feel the tensions, um, almost a too muchness. Like I've had to stop listening to certain uh, news channels, all of that, because there's just a, there's just too much. And I think we're all kind of, there's, can feel this. And I just felt that I wanted to at least begin to talk about some of this stuff, even though it's very difficult to talk about, but, um, we can't not talk about it either. So if you have any ideas of other talks as well or other ways I might address this, uh, please do let me know. Take care, bye-bye.